Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. After having finished the letters to the seven churches, the next section of Revelation, section 2, encompasses chapters 4 and 5. We see another section beginning because we have the phrase again, in the Spirit. Remember, that's going to mark each section as it changes. Chapters 4 and 5 in section 2 are a vision of God's throne room. The imagery here is drawn from numerous Old Testament prophets, including including Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 7. The stones that we hear mentioned are very reminiscent of the high priest's breastplate that we got way back in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. There are creatures and elders around the throne. And these creatures and elders represent all the nations of the world and all of creation. They are giving honor and allegiance to the one true living God by calling him holy, holy, holy. The repetition is an emphasis. It's a triple holy. So he's holier, holier, holier than anything else. When the praise happens, the 24 elders fall down. They fall out prone Falling prone was an act of respect and of worship. For you to get down on your face on the ground was to acknowledge that you were in the presence of someone much greater than yourself. Now, that kind of worship has fallen out of um, usage in most of Christendom, except for maybe in charismatic circles. They're also throwing their crowns down before the one on the throne, before God, That's a way of acknowledging that their authority always yields to that of God. God's authority is greater than any other natural force and any other kingdom in this world. From this vision of the throne room comes the idea that all we're ever going to do in heaven is worship. This is where we get the idea that we're all going to be sitting around on clouds, playing our harps in our little white robes. I'm not at all sure that that is a complete picture of what we will be doing in heaven. Certainly worship will be part of what we do, but it won't be all. In God's hand is a scroll that is sealed with seven wax seals. This represents the Old Testament prophets as well as Daniel's sealed scroll in his book. Take a look at Isaiah 8.16, Ezekiel 2.3, and Daniel chapter 12. This is all about how God's kingdom will come fully on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My kingdom come. Okay, but no one can open this scroll until John hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He can open it. He can do it. These are classic Old Testament symbols for the Messianic king. Take a look at Genesis 49.9 and Isaiah 13.5. The Messianic king was the one who would bring God's kingdom here through military conquest. So that's what John hears. He hears about a lion. But when he turns, 
What he sees is something different. He turns to see a bloody sacrificed lamb who is still alive and ready to open the scroll. So this pulls together the idea that Jesus is both the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, the predictive messianic king. He is also the suffering servant, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb is going to be really crucial to understanding the book. The Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated by the crucified Messiah. He overcame his enemies, not with military strength, but by dying for them as the Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of his resurrection, his death was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. His death and resurrection is how he conquered evil. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. This tells us that the eyes are the spirits sent out to the world or the churches. It also tells us that the seven churches are representative of all churches. Remember when I talked about the letters to the churches, I said he writes to seven specific churches, but there are lessons that all of us can learn. And most churches could find themselves somewhere in at least one, perhaps more, of those seven churches. The number seven is the number of completion or perfection, so it applies to all. Horns are usually a representation of strength or of reigning or ruling. So they often refer to nations or kings. So what we have here is the picture of Jesus as the lion, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, but also as the slain and yet living lamb, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the savior of the whole world. He is the one who sees the churches, who sends the spirit to guide them, and the one who reigns over all. The lamb opening the the scroll is a sign that Jesus has authority to guide human history to its conclusion. The song of the creatures and the elders gives us a little more information that about a kingdom of priests and they will reign on earth um, with him. The 24 elders are holding harps and golden bowls, which we are told are the prayers of the saints. Cross-reference this with Psalm 141 verse 2. Now they are joined by a choir of angels, just like the messenger was to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. And the seven things that the Lamb is worthy to receive are power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. In other words, this King of kings and Lord of lords who conquers by love and sacrifice is worthy to receive everything. He is above all that is. And the vision comes to a conclusion by the Lamb sitting beside the one on the throne and both being worshipped. Together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer. So the Lamb, Jesus, is with God and is God in the same way that John opens his gospel. And so that vision concludes with the Lamb beginning to open the scroll. We move now into section 3, where we're going to have three cycles of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. We'll talk about the seven seals in chapter 6 through 8. 
the seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11, and the seven bowls in chapters 15 through 16. So this third section of Revelation will take us from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 16. Some people believe that these are literal linear sequences of events, that first you see the things described in the seven seals, then you see the same the things described by the seven trumpets, and then you see the things described by the seven bowls. Now, different scholars feel differently. Some feel these may be things that happened in the past. Some believe they are things we see happening now, and some believe they are things we will see in the future. There are a few scholars who believe that the seals represent the past, the trumpets represent the future, and the bowls represent, I mean, represent the now. The trumpets represent now, and the bowls represent the future. But we need to notice that John weaves them together. The bowls come out of the trumpet, and the trumpets come out of the seventh seal. They're a lot like nesting dolls as they sit in one another. Each one of them, each series of seven, also culminates in the final judgment. So they all have the same matching conclusions. And it's really difficult to, for us to point to any kind of final ultimate judgment at the end of a section of past history or a section of present um, on there. So it's much more likely, and I side with the scholars who believe that John is using these things, seals, trumpets, and bowls, to describe the same period of time the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return, but doing so from different perspectives. So let's jump into the seven seals. In the seventh seal, the lamb opens the first four seals, and we have four horsemen. They are a symbol that comes to us from Zechariah chapter 1. They stand for times of war, conquest, famine, and death. All these things are tragically common in human history. The first one is the white horse, the horse of conquest. He has a bow and a crown. His desire is to rule, to take more land, to rule over many, many people. The second horse is the red horse, the horse of war. Um, Violence in general is really what this horse stands for. Slaughter um, in there, and, and he is given a sword to do this with. The third horse is a black horse. Um, That represents famine. He has scales. Food gets expensive when it's scarce. And it says that we will work a full day. A denarius was a day's wages. So you would work a full day and still not be able to purchase enough food to feed yourself for the energy that you just expended. So in other words, we would have no daily bread. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray, give us our daily bread in there, provide for our needs, even working hard, even being diligent, we will not be able to provide for our needs. The fourth horse is a pale green horse, and this one represents death. 25% of the world population through war, disease, famine, even from animal attack, um, the natural created order that would include natural disasters simply turns on us and begins to take lives. Okay, so the fifth seal then, after the four horses are released, we now have the fifth seal. 
and this represents the murdered Christian martyrs before God's throne. The cry of their innocent blood rises up to God like smoke from the altar of incense. Remember way back in Genesis when Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground. It's this idea throughout the story of God that we have in Scripture that the blood of the innocent cries out to God. It speaks to God, and God acts on behalf of the innocent. We don't ever want to be the oppressor um, because God does not appreciate an oppressor. So Christians have been murdered and martyred before God, and their blood cries out to God, and He will respond. They're told to rest, that more are, are yet to die. Martyring is not complete. We're not told why, but we are told that it will not last forever. They have a white robe. White represents pure and blameless. Um, and it's also important that they are vindicated. Um, white was also a color that nobles wore in the Greek and Roman empires. So there's a lot of symbolism in this white robe that they are given. They are asking when God is going to do something. Aren't we familiar with that feeling of watching what's going on around us? The war, famine, conquest, disease, natural disasters, the death that is occurring, especially when the church feels persecuted and we go, God, when are you going to do something about this? We see the, the martyred elders doing the same thing here. A very natural and normal response that I'm sure the group that John is writing to, that has been part of their prayers, is God do something, do something about these circumstances. The sixth seal then becomes God's answer. And the answer for them crying out for innocent blood having been shed is the coming of the day of the Lord. This is the response to their cry. And nature responds as well. And we see symbols here from Isaiah chapter 2 and Joel chapter 2. The people respond by hiding instead of repenting. Far too often when God finally answers our prayer, we don't see it as an answer. Um, we see it as something else yet to fear. But also let's remember that it's not God's people necessarily who are running to hide, but it is people who have been participants in the war, the conquest, the death, who have hoarded the high-priced food, who have not shared what they had with their neighbor, who have opposed God. Those are the people who ought to be afraid. When God's justice, God's judgment comes, those who have been on the wrong side of justice will be afraid. The people of the earth cry out, who can stand? Who can stand? Who can put up with this? They're scared and understandably so. And so at this point, John is going to pause for a minute. He's going to pause the action to answer their question. And chapter seven is like an intermission. So they've asked, who can stand before the Lord? Who can stand on the day of the Lord? And John pushes pause gives us an interlude to answer the question. Chapter 7 gives us a vision of the Lamb's army. An angel with a signet ring comes to a place to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring this hardship. Now, signet rings allowed someone to do business as if they were the owner of the ring. So a landowner would send his son or his emissary, his first servant, 
carrying his signet ring to go somewhere and do business on his behalf. And those with whom he did business could be assured that this servant, this son, acted totally on behalf of the owner of the ring because he bore the ring. So this angel who comes is acting on behalf of God. We can be absolutely assured that these people have been marked and claimed by God. 144,000 are sealed. This reminds us very much of a military census like we saw in Numbers chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. This number is what John hears, much like he heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. But what he sees when he turns is something else. He sees the fulfillment of this marking of people in Jesus, who is the slain lamb. This messianic army of God's kingdom is made up of people from all the nations, from all of the world, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham's family, through the people who would be as numerous as the sands on the beach or the stars in the sky, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that came to happen through Jesus. So this army, numbered at 12,000 times two here, um, is 12,000 times 12, let me get my numbers correct, represents all the people of the world, all the Christians who fight as Jesus fought with love, with the sword of the Spirit, with our prayers, with our actions, with our resistance. Um, We fight on God's behalf to bring His kingdom here, to bring His justice. This multi-ethnic army of the Lamb is the one that can stand before God because they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They have been marked in the same way that the Israelites marked their doors with the blood of the Lamb on the night of Passover when the angel of death passed over and took the firstborns. This army is called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and by bearing witness to the love of God, just like the Lamb did. And finally, the seventh seal is broken, but before the seal is opened, the seven warning trumpets burst forth from it. And it says that there is silence for half an hour. After each seal, there is a judgment, a a pause here. We're pausing like we're waiting for the judge or the jury to do the next thing. We're waiting on bated breath to see what will happen next. And for happening for half an hour, that's a pretty long pause. Like It feels like a long pause if we have a moment, a minute, a full 60 seconds of silence. But here there's a long pause, much anticipation, much waiting, very much sitting on the edge, waiting to see what would happen next. And fire is taken from the incense altar, and it is cast onto the earth. This represents the cries of the martyrs, the prayers of the saints, that brings the day of the Lord to its conclusion. So chapter 7 has given us this day of the Lord and answers, who can stand? Who can stand? Well, the people who belong to God through Jesus Christ can stand because we've been redeemed. We've been marked by the blood of Jesus. 
there. And so now the, the action is going to continue as the seventh seal is open, but the, the trumpets now burst forth. So now we have seven trumpets to look at and there's a pausing and waiting and there is, um, fire cast to the earth that brings the day of the Lord to its conclusion. So I'm going to pause and jump into the seven trumpets in the next podcast, just to not make these too long. Thank you.